Hey, all right, it's the country. I'm Justin Weller, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 11, originally recorded on October 17th, 2020. With me today is my good friend, Chris Rich, who is a technologist, guitar player. Uh, we were really good friends in college, one of my best friends from, from that period of my life, and uh, played in some bands together back in the day as well, and just a uh, great conversation about life and COVID and kids and politics and all that sort of stuff. So really excited to uh, share this with you, and um, great conversation. So here we go. Well, Chris, thanks for being on the show. How you doing? I'm doing great, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. What's new in your world? For those that don't know, you live up in Worcester. What's yes. uh, What's the lockdown COVID situation going on in your world up there? Um, it's about what you would expect. People are still trying to be cautious, and uh, the good news is is that you know restaurants are open for both indoor and outdoor seating, and obviously with uh, you know the state mandated protocols in place, so at least it doesn't feel um, quite like it was in March. Uh, so people are able to freely move about a lot more than before. And I think people have kind of gotten a little more comfortable with it. I know when it first came, um, you know, came out with the, the protocols where we were pretty much under heavy lockdown. It was, it was, it was tough. Uh, it was definitely stressful, but, um, yeah, it's much, much better now. That's good. That's good. And you were saying uh, before we started, uh, you've got a, a kid in uh, college. Is I, I forget. Is it her first year or is she returning? Uh, it is her first year. She is a freshman at Providence College. So what was that like? I mean, there must have been some serious <laughs> protocols to get her get her down there at Providence, right? Oh, absolutely. They they took every possible measure I think they could have thought of in in partnership with the. Rhode Island uh, State uh, Department of Health. And uh, I give them a lot of credit. They actually handled it really, really well. There was a lot of testing both before, after, and randomly uh, on campus throughout all of this. It's not to say that they didn't run into problems like a lot of other colleges and universities did because, hey, you know, college kids are going to be college kids. And, yeah. Um, but I, I would say for the most part, um, it was well organized and yeah, she's she's doing great. Um, really happy with uh, with her choice, and uh, she's making some great friends and doing what college kids do, which is you know make good memories and learn something along the way. <laughs> As you used to say, it's going to be a great four years, right? <laughs> it's going to be a great four years. Can't wait. What um are they able to go to class? Um, what are the protocols like? Do they have to social distance in class? Like how is it? Yeah, different? social distance, uh, masks all the time, unless um, they're on in their dorm room or on their floor. Um, but outside of their dorm room and their floor, uh, it is masks all the time. She's in a triple mm -hmm. with two other uh, with two other girls, and um, she has of all of her classes, she has only two classes in person. The rest of them are fully virtual. Oh wow! Yeah, I remember when um, over the summer that started to come out that colleges were going to do that, and it seemed there was a big uproar about the costs at that point. Did they make any adjustments there, or? Is, or what are they your thoughts did actually. Yeah. Um, the, the school was very, uh, I thought what they were very generous. Um, they definitely discounted, you know, some things as a result of the, you know, the, 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 the changes in, in the formatting of pretty much everything. So, 
I think they recognize that, you know, parents uh, would appreciate them um, not doing what some other colleges and universities did, which is basically charge full price for everything. Um, so actually, in, in our case, we, you know, we actually saw, you know, reduction in, in, in a variety of costs versus uh, an increase. So. That's really cool. Way to go, Providence, yeah. huh? Yeah. No, no, I, I give them a lot of credit. They, uh, they send out at least an email or two every day. And, uh, and they'll send out communications saying, oh, by the way, this is what we sent your sons and daughters, which I appreciate um, that, you know, they, they recognize that, you know, the parents are a big part of this as well. So keeping them informed, especially uh, during these times, it's really important. So I give them a lot of credit. Uh, I, you know, I, I have the, the, the benefit of being able to compare and contrast what some of my daughter's friends' experiences are like at different colleges and universities. And um, and I would, I have to say that the experience that she's having right now and, and the way the school's handling it is, you know, one of the best. Um, some of them are actually kind of crazy, like um, uh, University of Massachusetts up here. Uh, they were going to move students in up until about a week or two before the move-in date and basically said, nope, nobody's moving in on campus. Um, or a very, 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 very small percentage of people who had to be on campus, like, um, you know, chemistry, biology students, kids who had to be in, in, in the presence of a lab, you know, that you couldn't do certain things virtually. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I give them a lot of credit. They've, done it. They've handled it very well. Yeah, that's really cool. So um, my son's a junior in high school and he's been going virtually and um, it was interesting, you know, they gave, they gave you a choice before uh -huh. the semester started. And uh, we were we were conflicted. We weren't sure what to do, honestly. And so we, you know, <laughs> we were a little cautious and said, "Let's go ahead and start uh, virtual and see what happens." He's actually going to start going back to school on Monday, um, yeah. which will be interesting because you know it is so tough. I think for kids to just be locked in a in a room all day in front of a computer. You know, I see I him. I see him moping around, and you know. You'll probably listen to this and be pissed at me, but um, <laughs> but you know it's just a it's not a good experience. Like, I mean, I work from home and I have for years, and and I don't like like I have to force myself to get out of the house sometimes, right? And as a kid, I just think it's horrible for their development. And obviously, there's a lot of you know, um, you know, there's there's reasons why you would do it, and there's reasons why you wouldn't, right? But um, it's it's really challenging. I just feel feel kind of bad for him because you know you think about your junior year senior year or high school or even college right like this is some of the best times in your life you know yeah. and it's um it's it's really challenging so you're going to visit her i think you said this weekend do you have to do anything special to to get there or do you need to show you how to test or anything like that um no technically um you know it's you know, we'll, we'll be practicing the appropriate protocols, you know, for how we would if we were operating in and around our city, um, just to be safe. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think there is a requirement for you have to, you know, either quarantine for 14 days or um, produce a, a negative test within a certain amount of time. But, um, you know, I, th I think we're I think we operate very safely. So I'm not going to necessarily, you know, comply with that in, in the fullest extent, because I think we're, we're going to be there for just such a short period of time. And we're going to interact with basically with just my daughter. So um, it's not like we're going to go out to, you know, have a meal or anything. We're literally just driving there, 
uh, hanging out outside. We won't even go indoors even. Um, uh, and just drop a bunch of stuff off, food mostly. That's cool. That's cool. So I wanted to ask you, uh, for folks that don't know, you know, a few, I think a few years ago you had run for, was it the city council? Correct. City council for the city of Worcester. Yeah, that's so cool. What made you decide to do that? And tell me a little bit about the experience. Sure. Um, so there had been uh, many years, well, I was born and raised in Worcester first off. Um, there have been many years after having moved back to Worcester um, following following college and down in Pennsylvania that I, you know, that my whole reason for moving back to Worcester in the first place was because I, I love the city. Um, I had so much um, connection to it. And when I moved back, I was looking for ways in which I could get involved. And I started just, you know, in, you know, uh, uh, getting introduced to various people in my travels throughout the city and and someone at one point had said to me, hey, have you, had you ever considered running for political office? And I said, well, eh, kind of yes and no, but I, you know, I just didn't really know how to go about doing it. It wasn't really something on my radar. So, um, but I ultimately just said, yeah, you know what, if, if, um, if the conditions were right, yeah, of course I would. I would. And at the time there was, um, uh, there was a, a city councilor that represented the district that I live in that I just, I, I was just really not, um, I, I just really did not think that they were a good fit and were and did, did not holistically represent what I thought, not only the district, but what the city needed to move itself forward. Um, Worcester has a, a pretty rich history in uh, not only manufacturing, obviously being, you know, right smack dab in the middle of where the industrial revolution started. Um, but there was for many years, a lot of, um, families who had, who had immigrated and settled here um, that worked for a lot of really important companies over the years. And obviously, like many, you know, middle America, you know, cities and towns, the landscape changed, the economy changed, uh, the world changed. And Worcester had kind of gone through many, many years of just not, you know, just not really making as much of a mark uh, in the world as it had. And it was starting to show some signs of trying to course correct and, you know, and, and establish a new identity. And I thought that was a great opportunity to throw my hat in the ring out there and, um, you know, offer myself as a, as a serve, uh, you know, as, as a servant to the, the people of the, the district, but also as well as the city of Worcester. Um, so I had, you know, gotten introduced to a number of people who had some experience in this arena. Um, had gotten connected with, um, you know, people to help me, you know, run the campaign and fundraise and do all the things that go along with that. But the majority of the time it was me out knocking on doors. And it was it was a, a transformative experience, I will say that. And I think anybody out there who had ever considered doing such a thing uh, in their city or in their town, I encourage you to do that. Because here's what, what I found. There were, in my life, a certain experience that I had um, based on the neighborhood that I grew up in. And there was a lot of aspects to the city and a lot of people's stories that I was completely unaware of. And and let me tell you what, you knock on 3,500, 4,000 doors uh, over the course of a few months, uh, you get a front row seat to so many different stories, so many different perspectives about a city that I thought I knew really well. But what I found was there was a lot of there was a lot about it that I didn't know, and I, I I came to have an even greater appreciation for for what that journey was like. Even though uh, unfortunately the end result was I, I did not win, I, I do feel though 
um, having been a complete political newcomer, um, I, I made a great showing. I think if I split the votes by which I came short on, I think I was maybe 150, 200 votes somewhere in that neighborhood shy of, of unseating an incumbent, which up in New England, I think you'll find um, most incumbents tend to get reelected uh, and, and challengers oftentimes lose their first time out. So overall, great experience. Um, don't regret a moment of it. Um, I know my, my wife, you know, um, had, had a lot of nights where she was, um, you know, taking care of my two daughters at the time. Um, and uh, it was a lot of extra work for her. Uh, I missed out on a few things. Uh, while I was attending events and, you know, just, you know, doing what you need to do in order to campaign and, and share with the public what it is that you're about and, and what you intend on doing for them. So great experience. That's so cool. And I, I, I mean, I don't think that's a New England thing. I think incumbents dominate elections everywhere. Uh, I can't remember this, the percentage, but I want to say it's like 90% in Congress uh, that they get reelected. It's probably something we should change or fix. But um uh, I, what you said about learning stories, I think, is is really powerful. I sort of got a chill on the back of my neck as you were saying that. Can you share one or an example of something you learned from somebody that you you really thought was was impactful? Well, I mean, stories in the sense of you know people's experiences over a lifetime of having lived in the city, and I think you know people from Worcester will will readily attest to the fact that there's a lot of generations of families who you know who you know are born and raised here and decide to raise families here and live the majority of their lives here and it was kind of like that reinforcement of how people are so very loyal to worcester that kind of struck me the most um i had kind of heard of it anecdotally through stories that i would hear from people and just never really thought anything of it but to kind of get that up close and personal sort of take on it um i also too learned that you know, there was, there's a lot of people out there who have really strong opinions about things. Um, there's a lot of, um, for example, uh, a lot of retirees in the city of Worcester. There's a, a lot of people, uh, a lot of the population is made up of retirees. And I found it just sociologically fascinating to kind of hear them talk about their life experience in the context of, of, of what service they gave. Uh, a lot of teachers, uh, a lot of people who work for uh, for the city and surrounding towns. Um, I, I just thought that that was just fascinating and that you, you don't get that kind of information without actually having one-on-one -on -one conversations. I remember actually there was a story. I remember there was um, uh, a woman, she was widowed. Uh, she lived in my neighborhood, uh, literally uh, a street over from where I, I spent many, many years growing up uh, through mostly uh, junior high and grade school. And uh, I knocked on her door. Um, I was I was friends with uh, family friends with her neighbor across the street, and she'd kind of given me a, a warm you know a, a warm introduction as opposed to you know just cold knocking on on a door. Um, and she and she greeted me with a smile. She was very um, uh, very well spoken. Um, I, you know I could I didn't know what. Her history was, but I could I could, I could tell uh, this was somebody who who lived a lot of life and had a lot a lot to share about that. And then to my surprise, she invites me into her home. Now she doesn't know me from you know except for the neighbor across the street. Uh, and I can only assume that it was that trust that that 
made her feel comfortable welcoming into her home. I sat down at her kitchen table, very normal 50s style home whose decor hadn't really changed a whole, you know, whole lot over, um, you know, you know, her lifetime, but she seemed, you know, perfectly content and happy to be where she was. And she sat me down and we had this really, really great conversation about politics and how, uh, you know, the decisions that leaders make, you know, affect you know, you know, have this effect on so many other people. So it was just this very, just like, you know, mind blowing conversation I had with this woman. And in the end, I, I did what, you know, what every politician should do when, when you meet with somebody, which is, you know, ask them for their vote, you know, sincerely, honestly. Um, and you know what she said to me, I'd spent literally an hour at this, at this, this, this fine, lovely woman's kitchen table. Um, and she said to me, I have to think about it. And, and after all of that, I thought to myself, well, you know, if I if I can't, you know, if I can't make that type, kind of time investment and convince this person, I, I got a lot of work to do. But it was the kind of work that you don't do unless your your heart's really into it, and if you don't sincerely want to help people and to serve people in that capacity. And I, I would have never run for it. And, and that little funny story about me running, I actually, and this is kind of embarrassing, but I didn't even know that there was a paycheck that came along with it. <laughs> I thought it was just completely volunteer. And then to someone said, no, 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 that, yeah, it's a part-time job. Like you get paid for it. Like, and there's benefits come along with it. I'm like, really? For, to be a city councilor, like that, you know, just kind of showed the naivete that I had kind of going into it. Um, but I just, you know, that's just an experience that I will just, I will never forget. Um, another quick story. I was, um, I, I, same neighborhood uh, at this time. I was maybe two blocks away from where I grew up. Um, I don't remember exactly how we got into this conversation, but, you know, but again, I was surprised, you know, I was invited into somebody's home um, uh, and it was uh, a woman and her husband and, and, and they were, you know, retiree age and the husband um, was disabled. Um, he had a stroke and, and had a very, very difficult time walking, um, but he wanted to talk to me. I, at that point, sent out you know, um, you know, various, you know, collateral, you know, talking about the things that I was championing as part of my campaign. Um, and he invited me into this sort of like sunroom area, which is a very, uh, a very common um, type of uh, home layout in, in the neighborhood that I live in. Um, and I live in that neighborhood now, actually. And um, I noticed he had this real, um, this real old uh, Gibson guitar, and I'm a guitar player, as you know. And um, I was just my eyes immediately went to that. And I, uh, you know, after I had a, a, you know, a conversation with them, you know, about, you know, campaign related things, I said, you know, do you mind? Can I ask you, can I ask you about that guitar? Um, and he's like, oh, yeah, sure. He's like, yeah, I, you know, I played jazz for many, many years. This, you know, this is a guitar, but, you know, I've, you know, I've kind of, you know, lost some of the, you know, the strength in my hand, so I can't play it anymore. And I just said, I said, I hope you don't mind, but would you mind if I played it for a minute? And it was a, a Gibson ES135, uh, so mm. it was a, a jazz kind of, you know, uh, semi-hollow body guitar. Um, so um, I picked it up, and I started to play. And the, the first song that came into my mind was Blackbird. So I start playing Blackbird, and I got probably about halfway through, I would say, the, the first verse. And he says, stop. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me? He's like, can you show me how to play that? <laughs> so... So, you know, I ended up having this really great conversation, you know, with this guy and, um, you know, it was just like that kind of experience. Like you don't get that just, you know, going about your daily life. 
you, you get that because you know you you knocked on somebody's door you put yourself out there and i had this just beautiful interaction with these people uh lovely lovely people um uh, in the neighborhood people i would have never met otherwise had i not knocked on their door and i just got to learn all these just great stories about people it's so cool <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what to say, but what a blessing that was to have those experiences and do that thing, man. Uh, it's so cool. What um, what was the worst part of running for office? What did you oh, absolutely this, hate? This is funny. This is funny. You know, I had I had a lot of highs, a lot of lows. I so one of the one of the um, agendas that I was putting forth as part of my campaign is that one of the complaints that I'd heard from a lot of uh, a lot of residents, um, particularly um, residents of um, who were parents of very young children, and they were, you know, and, and they were telling me how um, giving their children an opportunity to participate in some sort of early childhood education, preschool, you know, preschool type program, the city just didn't offer anything that was broad enough so that the the demand was able to be met. So there was a there there was a program, but it was very limited. It was a lottery based, and I forget the numbers, but they had basically put it this way: they had a lot more people, you know, looking to participate in the program than they had capacity for. So as part of as part of my agenda, I had made a statement that I would I wanted to expand those programs so that more parents of 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 young you know, preschool aged kids could, you know, could participate in that and give their children an opportunity to, um, you know, have a preschool experience so that they would be better prepared for when they got into kindergarten and, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, so I remember I was, um, I was, uh, it was the day of the election. Uh, I was standing outside, um, just so happened by myself at a polling, at a polling location, um, that, um, I, I I hadn't spent any uh, I hadn't spent as much time at as maybe some of the other areas that I that I could because I you know there was only so many houses you know I could visit there were some logistics and it just it was just an area I just wasn't I hadn't knocked on as many doors so anyway um, I'm standing there holding my sign um, I'm in a suit it was a cold November day um, you know I got a trench coat on I think I had long underwear on and like wool socks because it was just this brutally cold day for some reason in early November and this car pulls out of the parking lot of the community center where that was a polling place um, and this car starts to drive away and then and it and this and it was an SUV and, and they slam on their brakes mm -hmm. and this woman puts her driver's side window down and she says to me I didn't vote for you <laughs> And it's because I don't want you to take my child away from me and put them in a preschool. And I was just at that moment, just completely dumbfounded that this person, you know, was saying this because they, they clearly just didn't get the message of what it was that I was, you know, that particular item on my agenda. And I, I just, I was just speechless, you know, and then they, I, I didn't say anything because I was speechless. They, they put their window up and, and, and away they drove. Um, and, you know, I was just sitting there standing by myself in the freezing cold on November 3rd, you know, trying to think about like, okay, what life, what life lesson am I getting out of this? What is the point to this? And I just, you know, the only conclusion I could come to in that moment was, well, this will be a good story to tell someday. <laughs> uh, and, and I have told that story on a couple of occasions just to, 
you know, it just taught me that, you know, people have their issues. Uh, they can be varying degrees of passionate about those issues. And, you know, that's how people sometimes vote. And sometimes you're voting on something that's, you you know, you're, you're voting out on, on, on something where you may not have all the context, you may not have all the information, or you hear something, and then you just kind of run with it. And that's, you know, sort of, you know, people in general, you know, perception being 99% reality sometimes. Um, so I, I just thought that that was kind of like the, the worst possible thing. Like, oh, there's a vote I didn't get, you know, one of the 150 or so that, you know, made the difference between me winning and losing that year. Um, yeah, it's like, lady, look at me standing out here in the freezing cold, right? Like, I get you don't like my policy. I even get you didn't vote for me. But did you really have to stop and tell me about it? Like, isn't there somebody yeah. you know you could talk to? <laughs> Right, right. I just thought that just was just so odd. Like you're actually stopping to tell me you didn't vote for me. But you know what? Um, I think you know for this city. Uh, again, I've, I've you know lived here most of my most of my life. Um, that's kind of what you get here, right? People will, you know, some people will just walk right up to you and tell you exactly what they think with absolutely no filter or no. Um, you know, no, I don't, I don't want to say lack of sensitivity or empathy or anything, but, um, yeah, yeah. People will, will tell you up here, you know, what they think. Um, and I like that. I, I'd rather that than, um, than somebody not wanting to engage in some sort of dialogue about, you know, one position or the other. So That's a great point, actually. Yeah. There's way too much bullshit in the world, right? Like if everybody just said what they actually thought, we might be in a much better place. <laughs> I agree. That's cool. That's cool. So would you ever run again? Uh, I would. Yeah, I would. Um, uh, the, the interview that I had the night of the election when it was pretty much, uh, it was pretty much sealed that, you know, I was, I was going to come, I was going to come a little bit short. Um, the local newspaper, you know, called me for a statement. Um, you know, I congratulated, you know, the, um, the incumbent for, you know, for the city council seat. Um, that I was that I was going to lose to, um, I, I made a remark about you know how, you know how how fortunate I was to be able to participate in the process and get to meet so many people throughout the district, um, and and then my final statement was um, I will continue to stay involved, uh, and then there was you know the period of so many years that had passed where, you know I was kind of just looking for like okay where's the right place. You know, for for me to participate. Meanwhile, I have you know two girls yeah. going through grade school, junior high, high school, um, and I was just you know very much you know like any parent, busy with their lives. But now my kids are older. My oldest obviously is you know freshman in college. My youngest is, is a freshman in high school. So uh, the amount of time that they need is kind of shifted in many ways. They they don't need the, the you know the, the you know, someone to drive them to soccer practice as much or help with homework. Um, so I've kind of, you know, identified other areas where I can give back primarily in, in the, um, the arts programs throughout Worcester. So I'm finding new ways to kind of, kind of leverage that experience that I had and the desire to serve the community and give back and give of my time and talents, because I think that that's, that's what any good organized society should um, should hope that its citizens do, which is participate, give your time and talents um, away freely for the betterment of other people. So, um, yeah, it's a thought that's been in my mind for, you know, some time. But having gone through it once previously, I know what 
level of effort is involved in doing that. It's non-trivial. It, it does require you to be, you know, really prepared. The first time I went through, I, I didn't know what to expect. I just knew that, you know, pretty much every weekend I was knocking on doors, you know, pretty much from sunup to sundown, um, uh, to the chagrin of some people uh, whose door I knocked on, uh, you know, before their day began. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, definitely would consider doing it again. Um, but, you know, it depends on the circumstances. And uh, But right now I'm not in any rush to do that. I'm, I'm happy participating in, in the groups and causes that, um, you know, that impact the community in my area. Yeah, you know, we actually, we have a friend that's running for the school board here in Hillsborough County, Vote Nadia Combs. Um, and, uh, yeah, it is amazing to me how much effort there is, how much time it's a full-time job at least. Right. And she's a small business owner too. And it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult. And, um, as, as we said before, you know, the incumbents have such a huge advantage. Like it really is a, is a problem in my opinion. And not that it should be easy to, to run and, and be elected to anything, um, but it, you know, like the idea of a citizen, you know, representative, a citizen legislature, like this is not my full time job. You know, I'm a I'm a normal person that works and lives in the community that we're talking about. And I'm yeah, I'm here to serve. But, you know, you just look at it. it's probably not at the city council level in most places, although, um, you know, I'd be interested to, to hear what you think. But. You know, in general, you know, if you look at the federal uh, level, the state level, like, you know, it's full time job and it's all lawyers and <laughs> there there isn't much of that anymore. And I think that's that's something we've lost, you know, um, the complexity of running for office, the complexity of the of uh, the legislation and the regulations and all those things that exist in in our society today, like. It just really bothers me. Like it, it doesn't need to be that complex. And I don't know. What do you think about all that? I agree. I agree. There's a lot of disincentive for people to do that because I know that there's a lot of people in my neighborhood, in my community that that would be great leaders. And and I and I want to use that term leaders, right? Yeah. It's not just a job where you go and punch a clock, you know, and you check some boxes and you know and you get a paycheck at the end. No, this is, you know, you're you're asked to be a servant to the people in the community. Um, you know, as, as a leader myself in my day job, you know, I, you know, I understand that, you know, there's, there is, there is a weight and a burden that comes along with that, which is sometimes, sometimes the direction that, you know, is the right one is not always the most popular one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as, you know, politicians out there, you know, you, you become easy, you become an easy target. A lot of what you do in life, you know, unlike many, you know, unlike years and years and years ago before social media and, and how readily and how readily available information and misinformation uh, is available for, you know, for people to put out there. It's, it's a big risk. And I, and I also too remember during the process, there was a couple people um, who came to me who I, I didn't know. I, I had no idea who they were. I had maybe met them, you know, minutes earlier because someone I didn't know had introduced me and they said, thank you. Thank you for running. People like you need to run. People like you need to, you know, represent the community. And I, and I could tell that that sentiment was coming from a, a, a deep rooted frustration in what it is that you, I think you're referring to, which is there is a machine and that machine tends to, you know, promote that machine's objectives and goals. And they identify people that will continue to support those objectives and goals. Um, and it's really hard to kind of inject yourself into, uh, 
those machines or, you know, get in the way of those to sort of, you know, drive change in, in, in different directions. And, you know, you, you know, we see it with low voter turnout. People get disenfranchised by their communities. They don't feel like, you know, representation is there for them. So it's natural for people to feel like, you know, why bother? Like, you know, what, what's in it for me? So I think that there are people who, you know, can and should, you know, put themselves out there in service to their communities. Um, but understanding that it's, it's a, it is, it's really tough. It's not only tough to do, but it's also tough, um, you know, when, you know, you, you represent something that is threatening to other people. Um, and that's sometimes when, you know, the really bad stuff happens and I've seen it happen. Um, you know, nothing like, you know, really, really bad. I mean, a lot of times when, you know, when, you know, leaders and, and, and people who engage in politics, you know, end up uh, coming upon hard times, I do feel like a lot of times it's, it, it's, it's, it's self-inflicted in some ways. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tough and I get why it's tough and why people don't readily just jump out there and, and do it. It's hard. Yeah, for sure. I like that machine concept. Uh, that you were talking about, right? Like, and it's and it's so difficult. Like, you have to raise so much money and and get so much support, which is which is hard. That you end up sort of needing the machine to beat the machine, right? Like, they sort of yeah. <laughs> incorporate you into the machine if you really uh, want to stick around. It seems. Yeah, exactly. It is it is a grand balancing act, um, and, and it's tough. And and I and, and I do feel like I had a lot of really good people in my corner you know, when I was campaigning. Um, and I'm very thankful for that. Uh, I, 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 and I could tell that there, you know, that there's forces at work that, you know, you, you know, you want to, you, you want to, the right thing to do is engage in meaningful dialogue, you know, with, you know, people's whose views differ from your own. Right. Um, and it's through, and it's through that, that you have an opportunity to find common ground and that common ground is what you use as a launching pad for success and advancement collectively. That's so hard to come by. So, so hard to come by. It is a very, very delicate, delicate balance and, and, and very fragile in many ways, too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I started doing this podcast. And, and one of them is that is like I felt like there's like no opportunity for discussion anymore. You know, it's just a big food fight. And, you know, this, this game that we play, you know, shirts and skins, red versus blue, however you want to call it. Yeah. And, you know, I get it. And I'm certainly, you know, lean to one of those teams. And but I love talking to people and especially people that with which I don't agree. And it seems very difficult in today's society to do so without somebody, and I'm at fault too, right? Like, I'm no angel, but without somebody getting pissed off or getting, you know, hurt in some way, um, right. you know, it, it, it's just really challenging. Like, so I want to go back to what you said, you know, like, one of, you said something like, you know, there needs to be dialogue, but I was, I was going to ask you more about, like, how do we change... Like, what are your thoughts on, I think part of what you're saying is, you know, incumbents are way, it's way too easy for incumbents to win, right? So if you could change something or a couple things to even that playing field and force those incumbents to have more discussion, you know, with their, with the folks they're running against, what would you do? You know, I think, um, I think there's a variety of things to do, but I also think that that, that variety is dependent upon the the situation 
um, and, the, and the environmental variables that are at work with, you know, whatever it is um, that you want to have a dialogue on, whether it's, uh, you know, neighborhood related, uh, district related, town related, city related, state related, nationally related, globally related. Um, there's, you know, it's, it, it, there's always going to be um, it, techniques and approaches that work better in some formats than in others. And, you know, I'm thinking very clearly to a piece of advice that, or a piece of, I guess, knowledge or wisdom that was imparted upon me from somebody at the state level that I had met in, in my travels during the campaigning. And they had said, and I'm, this isn't a new, this isn't a new, um, uh, a new term or expression, but all politics are local. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and because all politics are local, I do feel like the way to start a dialogue is to first identify the commonalities that you have with the other person and establish that familiarity on a context that is not universal, but, but shared with the person to which you're trying to have a dialogue with or to the group to which you're having to try and have a dialogue with and use that as a foundation upon which you kind of say, look, here's, look at all the things that we all have in common. Look at all the things that we all, you know, value uh, the same or, or similarly. Now that we've kind of established the things that we agree on, now let's maybe start to delicately step into the direction of things that we may not that we may not agree on. And instead of having a conversation about, um, you know, right or wrong, good or bad, just say, you know, different, right? You feel this way because of this. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Well, I feel this way because of this, and this is my experience. Okay. Well, you know, you know, what do we think about that? And instead of you know, creating an atmosphere of I'm right, you're wrong, that's bad, that's good. Um, you know, have a dialogue for the sake of having a dialogue, uh, as opposed to having conversations where the outcome that's expected is that somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. Um, and I think you know how you facilitate and moderate those types of conversations it means everything, um, because as soon as there's a sign that someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. Uh, immediately people's approaches to, to dialogue breaks down. Um, it's, it's the kind of concept that you get when, um, you know, you're talking to somebody and, and you can kind of tell whether their mind is open to a concept and they're willing to listen and learn and, you know, kind of in, internalize and reflect on some of their own beliefs. Um, and then there's, you know, people who, who are closed where they're not ready to have dialogue on certain things or, or their perspective is coming from a certain place that, um, you know, it, it might be it might be threatening to somebody or, or frightening to them or, you know, destabilizing for them to talk about a certain thing. And that's just that's just human nature. Um, so having an having an ability to kind of sense and detect those types of, you know, thoughts and feelings um, can be really helpful in all those different situations. But, um, you know, depending on the format and, and the, the scope within which you're trying to operate has a has a big impact on how you go about using these and various other devices to have dialogue. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not easy, especially on, especially as the population of people that you're trying to have a dialogue with, you know, gets past a certain point, which is why I really like the concept of all politics is local is because if I can have a conversation with my neighbor, we share the same street, we pay the same taxes, we have the same, um, you know, law enforcement and public services and, you know, all the other things that we all kind of commonly share as a community, um, you know, 
it's much easier to have conversations with people at that level. And it's, and it's from there, you can start to build something bigger, I think. Uh, and I, again, I don't, I don't have experience at the state and, and, and federal levels of, um, of dialogue, but, um, you know, I can say that when you can find commonality with your neighbors, um, you have a chance of moving things with the right, the right kinds of facilitation. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't know uh, if this is true, but I had been told that that quote, all politics are local, was from Tip O'Neill. <laughs> ah, <okay. laughs> uh, was he a Massachusetts guy? I think yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that's a beautiful thought. Um, and I agree with that 100%. I, there's, a, there's a guy I like, his name's Jordan Peterson, and he's like, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have a plan to fix the world. Tell me something. Is your room clean? <laughs> if you can't right. keep your room clean, how are you going to solve the economic issues for a country with 330 million people? You know, like, like right. you're saying, start real small. Start in your own life. Get it fixed, Right. Then right. if you've done that well, start branching out like you're doing, right? I, I think personally, I'm still working on my room, you know, but. Yeah, but and then maybe, you know, if you've got something there, then you could take the next step. And I really think that's cool. I, uh, I have to tell you, I'm jealous, too, because, you know, the way you talk about Wooster, it sounds like, you know, like just an amazing old town where there's a lot of people that, that live there and, and live and breathe and bleed Worcester, which I think is so cool. You know, I grew up in like transient area, like probably the two most transient areas I've lived in my life, you know, in America, I've lived in the majority of my life. So DC suburbs, right? Almost everybody's from somewhere else. They've gone there to work for, you know, the federal government in some capacity, you know, you know in so many cases. And then, you know, so I grew up there for 18 years and I've been in Florida for 20 years, which is, of course, another transit. Nobody's from here except my wife. She's the one. But um, it's, it's so different. And, you know, I kind of look at that with some jealousy. But I also wonder, like, you know, we did live in Pensacola for, for a couple of years and that's a, that's a small town. And I felt like we were there three years and I, like, started to run into the same people at the same places, you know, and it's like... I'm not sure I like that. <laughs> like there's there's something to be said to sort of, you know, your own little your own little garden that isn't necessarily uh people peeking over the walls all the time <laughs> that you know. But right. um but yeah, no, I I think on balance it is a pretty cool thing and to hear people that, you know, I grew up here, my parents grew up here and I want to raise my kids here. I think is a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is pretty special. Um but I I also like, you know, seeing other parts of the country. Um, you know, my, my professional life does allow me some travel, obviously not, not recently, but, um, used to good. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, so being able to, to experience different parts uh, of the country and part of the world too, is so important. You know, you, you, you know, you, you can't, well, let me, let me rephrase this. I feel like you're, if you have an opportunity to, and you choose not to travel and see other places and, and, and you know, expose yourself to the experiences that that brings, um, you're doing yourself a disservice because there's so much great, you know, great things to see and do out there in the world. Um, you know, why not get to see how other people live in different areas and gain an appreciation for that? Um, I just find that just completely fascinating and, and enriching and fulfilling. And I take those experiences with me everywhere I go, everything that I do, it gives me an appreciation 
infer the fact that other people live very different ways and and have different beliefs and have different customs and traditions and and I think that's great um and and being able to you know have an appreciation for that yeah for sure awesome you know and uh and, and I think sometimes you know sort of like the downside to um generations you know not ever traveling you know you know 50 miles you know past where they you know they were born has some you know, also has that effect of, you know, you, you don't get to have an appreciation for how people in Florida might live or in Colorado or in California. Um, so I, I think that's too part of what, you know, was part of the inspiration for me wanting to give back to the community in so many different ways, because I've seen, you know, so many, you know, rich, awesome things in other places. And I thought, wow, why not here? You know, why, why not, you know, why not try and, you know, recreate something really cool really ambitious that I saw and experienced um, in another place, uh, especially as it relates to like, you know, busy downtown areas, great, you know, vibrant arts communities. Um, it's great live, you know, obviously pandemic aside, great live music um, scene here in this area. Um, you know, just, it's just great stuff. Yeah, that is very cool. I want to go back to, uh, to the, um, you know, you talk about dialogue, and, and I think it's brilliant and absolutely right. And I don't know if you know, we have an election going on. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of caught wind of that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there is no dialogue. There is nothing like what you're talking about. Um, and, it, you know, if, if nothing else, it was made very clear, you know, we can't even put together a debate where people actually speak to each other. Yeah, um, that's frustrating. It, it's real. It's awful. And... I don't know what to do about it. I mean, what what are your thoughts about what's going on? Well, um, it is frustrating. I think um, I think we, as a result of the, you know, the this the craziness that's going on, it, it denies people the opportunity to make you know good decisions for themselves because you know people inevitably you're going to be second guessing themselves left and right about what's true and what's not, what's, you know, what's you know, what's fake news and, and what's real news, you know? And, and it's just really, it's really sad because I think, you know, every generation should try and leave things in better condition for the next. And part of that is, is showing people how to be good citizens and good people to one another. And, and that's really what's being lost here. And I think that's, you know, that's the most unfortunate part. What I will say is, um, you know, these things have, a, you know, hopefully have a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, and then, you know, maybe, you know, maybe at some point in the near future, some sort of change is going to take place. It's going to allow people to kind of feel better that things are going to move, you know, move in a direction that's going to be beneficial to a much broader, a broader population um it, it this is hard this is really hard you know people on tv and the media that they're constantly trying to you know help well i i like to think that they're trying to help you know the average person understand um you know where these candidates stand on different issues and it's just so so difficult for that um i know how i feel um i know how i get and sort through information and 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 you know, decide for myself. And I think the best thing is to encourage people to do the same. You know, don't just take something at face value. 
you know, lean into it, you know, ask questions, you know, do your homework, you know, look at the other side. Um, I think that's the best thing that we can do. Yeah. Do you, do you really think there's, there's folks on, uh, that work for large media outlets that are trying to just present facts fairly for people to decide? I think so. Although, um, although I think it would be naive to think that, you know, there is a lot of money at stake, um, in media and a lot of these, you know, other machines that, uh, I think many of them are, are very well intentioned, but, you know, m- you know, like politics itself, there's, you know, politics is, is give and take. Um, so I think, again, it, it's up to people to, you know, you know, look through the messages that are being delivered to them and ask, you know, where's this motivation coming from? What, what, you know, how, how do how do organizations and groups benefit from one message versus another or one direction versus another? Uh, you got to think critically about those things um, so that you can say, OK, this is a source that I trust. And, and there's sources where, you know, there's sources where I go, OK, I trust that. That makes sense. OK, I can I can validate that in, in some some ways. But then there's other times where, you know, okay, maybe that's, you know, maybe there's a motivation there to kind of, you know, persuade me or get me to think a certain way that, you know, may not necessarily be, uh, you know, uh, with the best of intentions. So uh, I try and accept the fact that most media outlets, you know, got to turn a profit. They're there to, you know, to, you know, to, to sell the news via advertising and all the other ways in which they make the money. So they can't do what they do unless they're able to generate some kind of revenue. So I understand from a, from an economic perspective, there's certain motivations that they, they're, they're beholden to. Um, so I guess I just sometimes just have to have faith, uh, that the, the human condition is such that uh, people will do, um, you know, do the right thing uh, as best and as often as they can. But I understand that, that's that's it's not always as as black and white as that or um yeah i i guess i'm just much more jaded than you man i uh i i mean i'm i'm certain and i try to find certain reporters uh to follow or or pay attention to like on twitter like most of the news i get honestly is twitter and Mm -hmm. uh so i try to find people that are like what you're describing but honestly i don't think that that um I can't think of a news outlet that that's main business um, business plan business uh, to your point. You know how they make revenue is outrage. Like I I can't think of one <laughs> that I would trust uh, implicitly when they read a news story. Like it seems to me the way we've set up everything between you know television ratings and clicks on the internet is what gets people going, keeps their eyeballs on it, is outrage at something. And, you know, um, like you said, because they're businesses and they're for profit, if that works and that makes us money, uh, that's what we're going to sell. And I think that's part of the problem, is that there is not a news organization that plays it down the middle and is interested in presenting a fair and objective view of what's going on. I mean, even this week, right? Like, whether the New York Post story about Hunter Biden and those emails is true or not, uh, Twitter and Facebook turned it off. They just stopped the link from working and, you know, hid behind a quote-unquote policy, but 
the exact same situation happened with uh, Trump and his tax returns with the New York Times, and, and that policy wasn't effect, affected the same way. And um, so, you know, I think there is a bias there, but even more so, there's, there's biased organizations on both sides, certainly, right? Fox and Breitbart and, you know, a bunch of others are in the tank for Trump. But, um, yeah, I just, I don't have faith that that's true anymore. And um, it really bothers me. I hear you. I, I, I totally get it. I, I totally do, which is why I like to actually I actually like to look at news outlets outside of the United States mm. on matters involving the United States, because I feel like there is less of an opportunity for any type of outside influence. Um, and it gives you that additional perspective. So. Um, you know, I'll take popular media outlets. I'll, 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 you know, I'll see what it is that you know they're covering and how they're covering it, and um, and and I and I try and be critical of every piece. Um, you know, to say that I accept what I'm handed, you know, chapter and verse is certainly the farthest from the truth. Uh, I, I am always very skeptical for the reasons of okay, what's the motivation here? You know, who stands to you know benefit? Who stands to not? You know, based on this, and you know, is there? You know, do I feel like there's there's too much opportunity for a message to be swayed one way or another. And, and I'll, I'll go and investigate, you know, again, other outlets, other sources. Um, although I will admit, I mean, I, I am probably, you know, m not spending a lot of cycles every day on following things for kind of the reason why I think you feel, you know, very jaded by media. Uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't really know again, like exactly who to believe consistently. So, I try and, you know, I try and skim a variety of different things um, and kind of form my own opinion, you know, based on the, the diversity of, of the information that I'm getting. Um, but, I, but I hear you. I, I get that. Yeah, yeah. I, I do, too. I mean, I try to try to hit as many um, different points of view as I can um, and, and look at different news sources. Is there one internationally that you that you, you find is your go to? No, honestly, yeah. um, I, you know, I probably would say, you know, BBC is probably the one that I end up on the most. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, I do, you know, I do like to mix it up, you know, sometimes, sometimes I'll be like, oh, you know, what are they saying in, you know, what are they saying in France about this? Or what are they saying in Canada about this? You know, um, almost to, almost to the point of randomness, um, <laughs> But yeah, you know, it's, 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 it, what's sad is like, um, you know, you know, politics are sieging war um, with our, you know, with our minds is the battleground. Mm -hmm. um, and anything and everything that can be done to distort and to sway and to persuade and to influence and to coerce our minds into thinking or feeling, you know, one way or another, um, you know, it was really sad, and I think you know this day and age with the with the with the way in which information is so readily readily available to us um, that we're just bombarded all the time. I mean, sometimes I have to turn the news off, frankly. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can't. I you know, I, I have to. I have to. I have to make that conscious effort to disconnect because you know there are times where you know I'll be you know having lunch during the workday and I'll you know hop online just you know catch my local news and you know I'll. You know, all of a sudden I'll look up and 45 minutes has gone by and I'm just following like my sixth or seventh thread on something. Um, 
and it, and it's and I, I think of that time and I'm like, wow, was that really productive? Like, do I feel like I'm like you know better informed? And and oftentimes I find myself just you know more confused um, and and have more questions than answers, uh, as it were. Yeah, I mean it's it's a huge problem, um, and uh, yeah, I mean like even I don't even know because obviously that's a top down approach. It's a business model, right? If you believe my thesis, which is you know outrage sells, and okay. that's why we're doing it. And like I don't even think at the highest level, like if you if you take the network executives, whoever those might be, or or you know whoever's running the social media um, platforms that are doing this, like. I'm not even sure it's ideological. I'm not even sure they're trying to convince you of anything. Mm. I just think it sells really well, right? Like you look at, like I used to watch um, in the mornings getting ready for work, I used to watch Morning Joe, which is on CNBC, or I'm sorry, MSNBC, right? And during the 2016 election cycle, like they had Trump on all the time. He would call in and talk to them, and this was, you know, before long before the primaries had started. You know, there was like one of twenty candidates, and uh, if you remember, like everybody thought it was a joke that he was running, right? And they had him on, and it wasn't like it wasn't a food fight. They just talked to him about what uh, about the campaign and what was going on and what he thought about things. And then, and I don't remember exactly when, but at some point, it just completely changed. They stopped having him on. I don't know if they had a personal fallout or what, but um, but they just started, you know, just denigrating him. And they have for four more years. And it got so bad where I, you know, I loved that show, but like it was always just like let's shit on Trump Day. And I was just like, I don't want to listen to this anymore. And I stopped listening to it. You know, stop stop having it on in the morning. And yeah. so I, I just think they, they at some point decided that they could make more money, you know, going against him than, than the money they were making for him, you know? And right. it's just sad. Like, I even thought about, like, a business model where, like, you, you present a story from, from one side of the aisle and then you present it from the other and then you have sort of the middle column where you just produce what, what they both say, you know, the parts of each story that, are agreed upon. You know what I mean? And (laughs) when I started to look into it, like, just like, okay, I'll take this article, take that article. Like, there's nothing in the middle. (laughs) They don't agree on any of the facts in many cases. So it's like, like, back to your idea, like, we need to have dialogue. Like, you have to start with a basic set of facts, things that we all believe are true. And even that is becoming more difficult. Like, sometimes I'll just turn on Fox, you know, for 10 minutes, and then turn on CNN for 10 minutes. And like, they don't even, they're not even reporting the same stories. They're not even talking about the same things, you know? And it's just, it's so, and I, I guess, you know, I'm belaboring the point, but it's, it's so, there is such a chasm between the two sides. Like, you know, I, it's just, yeah. I don't know what else to yeah. say, you know? I think that chasm, I think that chasm could potentially be filled by, you know, people like you and I who are, who are willing to have dialogue um, and, you know, think critically about the different points of view that are being, you know, thrust at us day in and day out, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year um, to say, okay, here's the, you know, here's the middle. Uh, This side is motivated by, by these, these variables and factors. This other side is is motivated by, by these variables and factors. Somewhere in the middle is the truth. Um, so that that's the way I choose to approach it is 
you know, take, take as much information as I can and form my own opinion. And then if people want to have a conversation on that, um, I welcome it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So why don't we, tr- why don't we try and do that right now, Chris? What's a, what's a big problem in America that you want to solve and how would you solve it? Ah, uh, well, I don't know if I necessarily know how to solve it, but I think I know how to start. And that is, um, regarding racial inequality. Um, there is a lot of unrest in our nation um, regarding race. We've seen it in the news constantly. And I think there obviously, you know, being a polarizing, uh, a polarizing topic in, in our, in our country today. Uh, I think to start, to start solving this goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is finding common ground. Uh, we have for, you know, for, a very long time made changes in how this country operates and, and how it's governed and, and the laws that, that, you know, we all, you know, we all abide by to come up with a free and just society. But there's, you know, there's, there's, you know, bigger things that sort of loom underneath the surface uh, of our world where, you know, these types of dialogues, you know, still need to occur with people. And if, if people can, find that common ground and and not be so uh, offense uh, or or defensive about dialogues on certain things um almost saying you know all right let's have a conversation and i promise no matter what you say for the next five minutes i'm not going to get upset by it i'm going to listen i'm actually committing to you i'm going to listen and hear you out i think if people can start having that type of conversation um you know starting with you know our in, in our neighborhoods um our uh you know, our families, uh, our communities, then we have a chance at actually trying to, you know, improve things. And, and part of that is going to require us to accept going in that we're going to learn some things that are going to be really uncomfortable, things that we're not going to like, things that are going to make us want to, you know, instinctively want to be defensive or react about. And we have to try really hard. If we're really, truly, you know, dedicated towards, you know, making, uh, you know, our society as best as it possibly can be we have to be brave and have those conversations in order for us to to improve things and again i I don't know how to solve it but i do know we can't start figuring out how to solve it until we can actually start having conversations about it even if those conversations lead us to places that make us really really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. i I agree with you 100 percent and you know i'll go a step further back to what you said about people at worcester just tell you like it is like i think that's more than half of the problem um, with racial equality in America is we don't actually talk about the real issues. Mm. We talk about a lot of stuff that is uh, a symptom of the problem or window dressing for the problem. Uh, To me, the problem is education and economic opportunity. And uh, people don't want to talk about those things because if you look into education, it starts to open up a whole bunch of other dialogues like, you know, <laughs> why are all the inner city schools horrible and why are all the suburban schools amazing? You know, like, why does that happen? And, uh, you know, what what um, what power centers are causing that? And it's mm-hmm. an uncomfortable conversation for everybody to your point and um you know 
I'm I'm really passionate about education. We spend, I want to get the numbers right, and I'm going off the top of my head, but it's something like this. And in real dollars, as of like 2018, in 1960, we spent $1,000 per pupil on education at every level, federal, state, local, et cetera. It's now, in, in my county, it's $16,000. So 16x in inflation-adjusted dollars. And we have nothing to show for it. The test scores are worse. <laughs> you know, um, just about every measure you can look at, we're not doing as well as we used to. And uh, we're not willing to, to think about that. I mean, we teach kids like we did 100 years ago. You know, and I think actually, I mean, if there's one good thing that came from the pandemic is that people have been forced to use a little more technology in education, but it's just, it's, it's horrible. Like we're, we do such a disservice to so many kids and, um, you know, we don't do anything about it, honestly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. The, 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 the disparity of, uh, you know, you break that down into the, you know, state and community level. You know, I've, I see it firsthand, you know, um, here in Worcester and the surrounding towns, to your point, um, you know, the the way in which, you know, funds are distributed in order to educate, you know, the, the, the children from one town to the next compared to the city. There's, there's a lot of disparity in, in, in how that's and how that's handled and funded. Um, and it, yeah, it's, you know, to, 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 to look at the to look at the numbers and not go, wait a minute, there, there's, you know, there's something not right with this, uh, is, is consciously turning a blind eye, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's tough. It's tough. And, you know, I, I say to my, you know, my children, uh, this is, this is a topic that, you know, comes up a, a lot at our dinner table. Um, and, and one of the points that, you know, I, at least for me, I, I kind of recognize is, is this is, this is a problem that's existed for generations. And it's probably going to take, you know, a few generations for it to, you know, to get right. If, if there ever is a right, you know, there's, you know, this is, this is a, this is a generational thing. It's going to take a lot of time for these things to come up because of that discomfort and because so much of what's, you know, preventing progress is so, is so entrenched into our society. Um, you know, that's really, really difficult change to make and, and it takes a lot of time, but it, it starts, it starts with, with finding that common ground and having dialogue about it. Yeah. And, you know, and, and being honest too, you know, like what, <laughs> what really gets me about that discussion. And again, you know, you haven't said it and I, this is, I'm not uh, taking you to task for it at all, but like, we're not honest about what the problem is either. Like, honestly, when folks start to talk about, uh, you know, the United States being systemically racist, it does, that's one of those things that um, does upset me. And, and the reason is that I feel like it's not a fair shake. Like, do we have problems? Absolutely. Are there racist people? Certainly. Are they a big part of our population? I don't think so. Uh, are there systemic things that we could do to help people that have, uh, people of color, people that have been disadvantaged for whatever reason? Certainly. But what, what bothers me about the narrative and what it becomes is, you know, it doesn't really take an honest look at history. You know, the history of the world is oppression. The history of the world is totalitarianism and authoritarianism and racism. 
and subjugation. And the United States started a journey that was a separation from tens of thousands of years of that. And was it always perfect? <laughs> Certainly not, right? But it is a, a big uh, um, deviation from the mean. And the reason we can have these discussions, the reason that people realize that maybe we haven't lived up to that standard as much as we should is because of the United States of America and, and what happened in 1776 and, and, and on. And, and it really bothers me when it gets presented as, you know, this is a systemically racist country and start to make comparisons to things, you know, like Nazis and other things. Like, there's no recognition of, of, of what's actually happened and what's actually true. I mean, it's cliche, but like, Barack Obama was the president of the United States, you know? Like, a systemically racist country doesn't elect a black man in a majority white country to be president. You know what I mean? And you can, you can do 50 different facts like that. And, and again, I don't want to diminish the problem. There is a problem, right? But I just think when we come to a dialogue with, with what I would say is, is incorrect information, it makes it very hard to, to take the first step. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a tangled web for sure. Um, and, and you're right. There are many. There are many indicators throughout history, our country's history, we can point to and say, "Look, that's progress. <laughs> Look, we, you know, we saw a problem, we made a change." Um, In the history of the world, an <laughs> army has never fought a war <laughs> to free people from slavery, ever. It's never happened before, and it's never happened since. You know. Wars are always because of resources um, or political views or religious beliefs. Yeah. Um, and uh, you're, you're right. I mean, you know, the United States of America isn't special in that, um, you know, a big part of, of why we exist is because of, you know, the, the, the colonialization of the world by then the, the then, you know, world powers. Yeah. Uh, it was a pattern that, you know, had been in practice, you know, for centuries. Mm -hmm. uh, so of course we're, you know, of course we're children. We're all children of that. Um, you know, the part where I think, and, and you know, the reason why I feel like the the whole tone of, of what's going on now has shifted is I think, I think people are at a point in history saying we should, you know, we should demand better of ourselves. We should know better by now. We have all of this, you know, technology that we've built, all, all of this progress that we've made um, in the world. Um, you know, you know, what point are we going to learn uh, and, you know, you know, do what's do what's right and, and to understand things for what they are and not what we believe them to be because it makes us feel comfortable or makes us feel like, oh, you know, that isn't my problem you know, to confront. And, and this is, this is not easy stuff. I, I wrestle with it day in and day out. How, how do I somehow, you know, change my behavior, my dialogue, my way of thinking so that I'm, you know, at least for myself and the people near to me are doing things to, to move things in, in a better direction. 
uh, it's not easy. And, you know, all I can say is that I'm trying. Uh, I'm trying to educate myself. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to read, uh, you know, read more and understand more and be, and be more open. Um, and for right now, that's just where I'm at. And I, I hope other people, you know, kind of get to that place too. Um, and, and know that it's, it's, it's going to be tough and it's going to be, yeah, like I said before, it's going to be uncomfortable. For sure. I mean, cause, um, and I, I, I'm very interested in, in like sort of prehistory and anthropology and, and read a bunch of books on it. And, and like, for sure, it's very hard because we are hardwired, right. To live in a sort of, um, in a small group, like a hundred people or less, right. Like, like a, tr- a tribe basically for lack of a better term. We're hardwired wired biologically to live like that and, and the way our social interactions work and everything about us is built to survive and thrive in a, in a scenario like that. And whenever uh, uh, you think about a, you know prehis- prehistoric man, another tribe comes up, you are instantly afraid of them. You are instantly worried that they're going to attack you, kill you, take your stuff you're instantly afraid because they probably have diseases you don't have, right? I mean, like, look at the Native Americans, right? Like, <laughs> they would have been real smart to never interact with Europeans. They'd all be alive still, right, just from the disease aspect. So, like, it, I think it's hardwired in our, like, way down in our lizard brains, right, to, to be um, afraid and skeptical of people that don't look like us or of, you know, things that we're unfamiliar with even, like forget people, uh, could be anything. And so, yeah, you're, you're talking about like a software program, right. That has to run that, um, that can get around that, get through that, work through that. But it's very difficult because again, that's the way we're hardwired. And when, when you, when you're faced with, um, you know, the unknown things you haven't dealt with before, that's where your, that's where your mind goes is right to the hard wiring, you know? Um, and I think it's, it's, um, it's very challenging, but at the same time, I think if you look at, again, like the couple hundred years or even a thousand years, we, where we've come from where we were, the way we've risen out of so much of that, that, um, it's, it's actually a, it's a miracle in, in many ways. And again, like even the fact that we can have a conversation about it, you know, is is you know in the history of the world it's happened once you know and so i don't know it's it's um it's it's definitely i I don't mean to minimize the current problems but i just think that there's you know in order to have a real dialogue about what's happening and where we need to go we have to get to understand what's happened and it seems like we're starting to erase a lot of that and ignore it because it doesn't fit the narrative yeah, I hear you, uh, and I and I do agree. I think I think understanding how throughout human history, how the how the world evolved, is is very much the reason why we are where we are today, and and how important that is for us to keep that, you know, as, as a as an important perspective as we look forward to the future. Um, you know, we're defining what that human history is now. You and I and everybody else, you know, living now. Um, if, if we want to make real change, it's, it's going to be hard and, but we can't not do it. 
we're, we're too smart for that. Or I like to think we're too smart for that. <laughs> so when I asked you what's, uh, what's a problem that we should solve, I was hoping you would say healthcare. <laughs> what's your, uh, what are your thoughts there? On healthcare? Yeah. Gosh. Uh, well, you know, um, I'm certainly not, not really well read up on what the healthcare problems are of this day. I do, what I do know is that, um, for an industrialized nation, the healthcare system that we have is not on par with other nations uh, of, of similar stature, which is completely perplexing to me. How is it that we can have all of this technology and all of these resources, but yet still not be able to provide a standard of care to the population that's on par with our with other industrialized nations? Certainly, something wrong there. Um, the 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 cost associated with getting um, you know, getting getting treated when you need it just seems I- I ridiculous. Uh, you know, I pay. Uh, you know, my I have a family healthcare plan, uh, high deductible plan. Um, thankfully, um, my family and I are, are in generally really good health. Um, it's not like we have anything. You know, you know, any type of condition that requires us to spend, you know, lots of money on an ongoing basis to just maintain a certain standard of living. Uh, which I'm very, very, very thankful for. Um, but, you know, I, I, what I find interesting now is being in that I get the bills. And when I look at the bills for a, a visit that took, you know, say 45 minutes to get a bill for like, you know, $2,000 just doesn't, you know, quite just, just doesn't quite seem right to me from, from a business perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Like how do you justify that cost? Now I get, you know, y- you, you make a drug. Um, the drug costs you $10 million to make. You know, it's not a nonprofit organization. They got to find a way to make money. How do they make money? They they charge a certain dollar amount for it. It's, it's supply and demand. But when it comes to people's health, you know, I worry sometimes that 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 concept of okay, I, you know, I need to I need to you know get a return on my investment here, you know, enters into the potential realm of the perverse, right? Where okay, at what point have you made enough money on this particular mm. um, drug? And I, and I don't understand like you know what the you know what the you know, the patent, you know, timeline is for, okay, you produce a drug. Okay. You're now allowed to exclusively sell this. No one else can sell this, you know, for 10 years, but after 10 years, you have to give it up. It's now the world's, um, you know, there's just so many dynamics to that, that I'd like to know more about. Um, but I really don't, do I think, I, do I think healthcare is a basic human, right? I do. I think people should, should feel like, you know, if they get sick, they can get help and they, and, and they don't have to, um, you know, they don't have to go to debtor's prison to do it. Um, but I don't, I don't really know how to solve that. And I think it's one of those things where, you know, throughout my life, I've been able to, I've been of good health. Um, my family's been of good health. It's not something I've really had to pay that much attention to. So sorry, that's probably not the, <laughs> not the dialogue you were looking for, but. Yeah, no worries. So, but you did say you think that everybody, um, like healthcare is a right. So how would we deliver that if, if it was something I just have as a right, like free speech? Well, obviously there's costs involved. So, you know, somebody has got to pay the bill some, at some point, somewhere, somehow, some way, you know, obviously doctors need to get paid so they can put food in their tables and a roof over their head and people doing tests in a lab need to get paid. Um, you know, at, at some point along the way, everybody has to, you know, contribute what it is that, you know, they, 
you know, can afford. Uh, I don't know exactly how to arrive at that, at that number. Um, but, um, you know, I do appreciate that, you know, there is a cost associated with that. However, I do feel like that there is a lot of inefficiencies um, in the way in which current healthcare organizations are structured. Um, uh, as a technologist by day, I have had an opportunity to kind of get an understanding of how some of the healthcare systems out there work. Um, certainly, I'm an expert by no means, um, so I'm certainly not saying that. But I can certainly tell, you know, from the distance at which I've, you know, been able to interact with healthcare organizations, that there is a there is a, a lot of room for opportunity to improve the efficiency with which we deliver services. So while there is a cost associated with delivering services, I think that there is a lot of opportunity to make the delivery of that much more efficient. And then in 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 achieving efficiencies, we're able to provide more good to more people at a lower cost. Yeah, for sure. And I'm no expert either, but that doesn't ever stop me from having an opinion. <laughs> and, um, you know, my take on, and I, and I don't know how to solve all of the things, but, but to your point, like there are huge inefficiencies in my opinion. And a lot of it is around perverse incentives, right? Like, uh, the, the people seeking the service don't, don't pay for it at the point of sale, right? They don't decide which service will be performed. You know, the, the whole, like, process with a doctor and an insurance company and a benefits administrator and prescription drug administrator, you're right. There's, like, so many middlemen and people involved in what's happening, what it costs, you know, when it's provided, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, I get it. Like, it makes sense to me. But you look at something, and, you know, I'll say, say like, uh, like bookstores, right? Like, or retail operations. Like you take a company like Amazon, right? There were huge in <laughs> there were huge inefficiencies in the process of buying books and all the other stuff that we buy uh, from Amazon now. And they just they automated out the inefficiency, you know? The Jeff Bezos thing, like your profit is my business model. And I think that's one of the major problems with the costs, right? Like, in my opinion, and, and I think this holds true, if you look at things, the things the government gets involved in regulating and providing for people causes inflation to skyrocket. So that's education and healthcare are the places that government are, are most involved. And those are the industries that have inflation well above the other inflation rates. And there's a reason for that, you know? There's a lot of people lobbying Washington to... Uh, I mean, if you look at Obamacare, it was it was in part written by insurance companies and prescription drug companies. Nobody wants to talk about that, but it's true. And they're making more profit, and they're doing much better than they were before Obamacare. And um, to me, that's a big part of the problem, is that, you know, in fact, the HMO system, you know, the insurance company system was also created by Congress in the 70s, you know? So, like, the things that we hate about our healthcare system... Um, in 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 my opinion, a lot of it is the unintended consequences of what the government's already done, or maybe in some cases intended. Um, I really think. I mean, certainly you have to have. Um, I can't think of the word. You need to have you know some sort of basic coverage where people get sick and they can't afford to take care of themselves. We need to cover them, right? But you know, some you talked a lot about prescription drugs, like. So much of the insurance policies that we have are simply 
prepayment for goods and services that we may or may not need, right? So in other words, part of your insurance policy is the cost of the future prescriptions you might need because you get sick or have a medical condition or the cost of future visits to doctors or x-rays or whatever that you may or may not need, right? Like you're paying for all that in your insurance policy, whether you use it or not. And it's just a perverse incentive, right? Like uh, the insurance companies have an incentive to deny you those coverages because again, you've already paid for them. So they don't want to give them to you because that takes out of their, their bottom line. Also, you're paying for things you may never use, right? Like their, their, their actuaries are doing some math to figure out how many prescriptions of this thing we need across the population. And then we add that to the cost. Well, you may not need that. So, you know, there's things I would do that I think could like what, you know, if you took Amazon, Walmart, and, you know, just those two companies that said fix healthcare outside of, you know, like serious stuff like surgery and major medical stuff, right? Like just fix prescriptions, fix doctor's visits, fix, you know, services like x-rays and scans and that sort of thing. Man, I bet you, and, and they took the regulations out, but obviously have a basis where, you know, people are, are kept safe. I bet you we'd see the, the cost of those, you know, go down tremendously. And it's just sad that, again, there's something we don't talk about, right? Because it's already like, no, everybody has to have some insurance and this is the way we do it. And maybe we should go to a model where it's a single payer. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, things like that, uh, tackling, you know, less serious health concerns as with more an economic view would, would cause a lot of um, broken things to fix themselves. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, you touch upon something that I think about a lot uh, across, you know, many different industries. Uh, and that is when an organization's profit model is, is based upon inefficiency. Yeah. And I think healthcare is certainly a, a prime example of that. But he, here's where I, as a technologist, have faith that um, even systems as big as healthcare can be disrupted. Um, uh, aside from the fact that, you know, my, my first premise about healthcare is um, you have to educate yourself and understand what it means, you know, to be healthy. Um, you know, you, you know, should you know, try and have a good diet. You should have some sort of regular exercise. You should try and get, a, you know, good sleep. And I know this is just, this is probably, you know, very naive to just say, oh, these things will solve the world's problems. Certainly not. But, you know, how many people out there were brought up in an environment where they didn't, you know, they didn't really know what it meant to take good care of yourself, right? And and, and live and try and live a healthy life under making the connection between, oh, what I put into my body has an impact. Um, and, and now we could go down a whole other rat hole, you know, yeah. for hours on, on, you know, where that road goes. Right. Um, you know, but every industry out there today is being disrupted by technology. And I think, you know, every, there's no, there should be no industry that's perfectly safe, um, from the future. We think about what is the world going to look like a hundred years from now? We're already starting to see it. Um, you know, we're going to be able to implant chips into our children as GPS trackers, I mean, it's a little science fiction-y, but, uh, wait, you know. Wait, 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 wait. Be able to, I think, is the wrong phrase. <laughs> that scares me to death, Chris. 
but the technology is there, right? Yeah. Like, like think about all the things that we, we might all already be chipped, you know? Well, right. That's right. <laughs> and, we're, and, and Jeff Bezos has got all the data. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you think about where's, you know, where's, where's, where's humanity going to be a hundred years from now, given all these technological advances, which by the way, you know, double every 11 months, you know, that's, that's a number that's, you know, commonly, you know, thrown around out there in, in the media, you know, technology advances so quickly you know, eventually that technology is going to is going to prevent institutions like healthcare from being able to continue doing the same old thing. So what do you as a as a as a business do? You go to your government and you try and you try and do what you can to protect your business model. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's and that's where, you know, I think we and many people would universally agree. That's the problem where politics fails us. Right. Yeah. When when there are institutions that are advocating for keeping things in a certain way that's not in the service of, of the general good. Um, you know, and, and, and I will say too, uh, I think the government generally is really bad at running big things. Um, we've seen there are all kinds of examples out there that show, you know, governmental, you know, making something run by the government is not a good idea. We see it in other foreign countries where the government is, it, it can be very bad at running big projects. Not to say that all big projects governments run are bad, it just it, it just seems like history tells us, you know, we, we shouldn't always look to the government to solve our problems. I think, you know, another thing I firmly believe in is, you know, responsibility begins, you know, with the person in the mirror. Um, you know, we can't expect the government to solve all of our problems, nor should we ever. Um, there's a certain part of our, our future and our fate that, that rests in our hands. And we need to understand what that is and take advantage of it. But I think the good thing about technology is that it, it will eventually disrupt every inefficiency because if there's a better way to do something, somebody out there is going to come along and say, you know what, I can, I can solve that problem for a fraction of the cost. And what are, and what are the companies that they're going to threaten going to do? They're going to try and buy them out. And eventually they're going to come up with a number and find a price and they're going to make sure that that, that goes away. We've seen that happen a lot in technology as well. Um, but the way the world is sort of like the, the double-edged sword of technology granted we get bombarded with you know mixed messages throughout all these different social media outlets constantly non-stop but it's also that same technology that kind of positions us to be in a place where we could potentially disrupt many inefficiencies that could stand a chance at making you know the human condition be that much better for a much broader audience of people mm. yeah i i couldn't agree more I, I really liked what you said about companies going to the government to help through that process, right? Like you're talking about regulation, right? Like the more regulation in an industry, the bigger barrier to entry. And, and, and so that's certainly in healthcare. And, and in fact, um, I saw some folks talking about, I, I mentioned in passing before the, the Twitter, Facebook censoring thing that's going on right now. And uh, somebody said to me, well, you know, I wonder if they aren't almost doing this to force government to regulate them. Because the more regulation that comes in, the less likely somebody comes in and, and, and disrupts their business, right? And, um, you know, you think about that, like, how hard would it be to, to disrupt Twitter? You know, pretty, pretty easy to build. You just have to get people using it. But if there's a ton of regulations with which you have to comply that have a ton of costs, like our banking industry, for instance, or insurance or what have you, it makes it that much more difficult 
uh, for capital to follow that plan and, and, and make a success out of it. So it's pretty interesting. As you were talking too, I was uh, reminded of a quote. I had to look it up, honestly, from Thomas Paine, who wrote um, Common Sense, you know, the pamphlet that helped us start uh, the Revolutionary War. And he says, some writers have so confounded society with government, but society is produced by our wants and government by our wickedness. The former promotes our happiness positively by uniting our affections, the latter negatively by restraining our vices. The first is a patron, the last a punisher. And uh, that's a little, <laughs> that's a little strongly worded, but I do um, often think about that as people, like I, I mean, like you were saying in the beginning, I agree. Like I'm a libertarian man. Like I'm very much free society, free government, or you know, least government possible, just freedom, right? Like so, very socially liberal, very fiscally conservative, and. You know, I agree with just about everything that people on the left or the progressive movement wants to solve or problems. All it is is how to solve it. That's where I disagree with them so much. And, and that's what it is to me is they, whenever they identify a problem, they look to government to solve it. And almost first, like that's the first step. Oh, there's a problem. Let's get a new law. You know what I mean? To the to the extent that we have seven hundred thousand pages of federal law, and that's not even the only jurisdiction you live in, you know, nobody can understand all of that. Nobody knows ten percent of it, and um, it's just it's so perverse, in my opinion. Like, let's try and solve it without government. Let's have government call the balls and strikes, you know, draw the foul lines, you know, where the bases are, but let's play without them involved, right? And I just, I, you know, I don't, I, I worry about um, where we're headed because, you know, every year the government gets bigger, more powerful, more regulation, et cetera. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. What do you think about all that? Yeah, I, I definitely think there's, there's, yeah, government's just, you know, too, too involved. But, you know, I think, you know, like I was saying earlier, I think people expect government to solve all their problems, and that's, and that's really the wrong way to think about it. Um, and, and I'm, I'm with you. Um, I, I'm definitely a fiscal conservative. I believe in, um, you know, industry has a great opportunity to solve problems if, you know, if, if given the right parameters within which to operate. Um, but I don't know exactly how to make it smaller because there's a lot of people who profit benefit from mm. a big complex government. That's, that's, that's hard to disrupt. Yeah. It is. And that's the forces that are at work is that there's a lot of people who who benefit from that inefficiency and will protect it because that's their business model. Um, so again, I go back to, you know, I go back to the hope that maybe technology can, uh, and, 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 and a free market can, can solve problems that people really have, uh, which is why I like with healthcare, like, you know, I have healthcare, I, I pay what I pay. Uh, I'm certainly not in a position to negotiate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's just one of those things where, you know, it's just a, a that particular battle I choose not to get too, too, too heavily invested in. Um, again, I think part of that is because I'm, I'm healthy and, and uh, I, I try and lead a, a you know, relatively healthy lifestyle. And I, I understand the relationship between, you know, what, you know, what I eat and my level of activity uh, and how that ties to my health. But um, yeah, government, too many places, not generally really good at, at, at managing things. Uh, uh, you know, I get a big kick out of, um, 
you know, hearing about, you know, when, when, uh, you know, government, state or federal, you know, puts, oh, a new website for this marketplace or, or this program, right? And then, it, and it's crashing every other day. Like, <laughs> that's what I do, like, for a living is make sure stuff like that doesn't go wrong. And I'm like, yeah, of, of course, of course, it's problematic, because, you, you, you know, you have, you have a machine that's, 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 that's made up of bureaucrats, you know, that profit from, you know, the disorganization of it, and protect, you know, and, and protect themselves, whereas a, a more open market approach to it would be, yeah, let's, let's, let's get this done the most efficient way possible. And, you know, perfect is the enemy of the good. That's one thing that I think also two people just get all, you know, riled up over. Um, you know, you, you, know, you got to build something decent and then iterate your way towards something better. Uh, not necessarily expect and, and be hypercritical of something, you know, whose first pass is, you know, is suboptimal. Mm. Um, but now we're probably getting more into technology than. <laughs> no, I think it's brilliant. And I agree with you. I mean, if you just look at the past 20 years and the way our lives have changed through technology, it is amazing. I think it has its problems too, right? Like I'm, I'm way too addicted to my iPhone. <laughs> I've even noticed and it, and I notice it getting worse every, every day and every year. Like my attention span is so much shorter. Like I used to sit around and just read for five hours and I sometimes can't sit for 10 minutes reading a book. And, you know, I like to blame the iPhone 100% for that, um, <laughs> right or wrong. And, uh, you know, it is, it is very different. Like, I, won't, like I, I have family members, like cousins, that uh, just got rid of one. You know, he's, he's just like, you know what, not doing it anymore. And uh, we, we actually started, uh, we've gotten away from it because I'm addicted, because we're all probably addicted. But um, we, for a while, we're doing like a, we called it phone Sabbath. And from from sundown on Saturday night to sundown on Sunday night, we all put our phones in a drawer and just spend that that Sunday, you know, disconnected from technology. And it was it was pretty cool. But I'm too addicted. I've, we're not doing it anymore. Um, so I yeah, there's definitely benefits, but there's also I think traps that we gotta we gotta worry about. Like technology isn't the panacea. You know what I mean? Sure. No, no, I, I absolutely. In fact, I'm glad you said that because, uh, you know, I, I view technology as a tool. Mm -hmm. It's a hammer, it's a screwdriver, it's a wrench. It serves a purpose. And generally that purpose can be classified as one of two things. Um, it's either to, you know, from a business perspective to reduce costs or increase profits from a human perspective to improve the quality of your life and enlighten you in some way a new way that you weren't previously or to just, you know, you know, numb your mind, everything else is just entertainment. And if you want to, you know, have a device and you want to be engaged in technology to be entertained, that, that's fine. Just be conscious of the time you spend being entertained, you yeah. know? Um, but that's it. At the end of the day, like, uh, and I am I'm very, very vocal about this in, in, in my daily life, um, in, in my work. Um, you know, I, I always say, you know, the tool works for us. We don't work for the tool. And you'd be surprised how many times people, you know, kind of, you know, give me like this odd look, like, well, you know, what do you mean? This technology, this is, this is what it's supposed to do. And I'm like, no, we don't have to use this, right? We don't have to go down that route, right? We choose, we choose how we go forward. Um, and I think that that's a trap. A lot of times technology companies get, get caught up in and people who are very involved in technology uh, get involved and they don't know when technology isn't the solution to the problem. Or when pivoting towards a different technology is the right move, 
um, you know, we tend to sometimes get technological blinders on. So I very much agree with you. It's, it's a tool. It's to serve a purpose. And you got to know what that purpose is, you know, lest you find yourself waking up, you know, eight hours later and wondering where your day went, you know, on your, you know, 752nd, you know, uh, Snapchat video or TikTok <laughs> video, right? That's what my kids watch is TikTok. Right? I don't spend a lot of time on social media. I'm there to get in, get out, get what I was looking for. Maybe every now and again, I'll hop onto YouTube like I was this morning looking for, you know, some some video on a, on a song I want to learn how to play. Um, you know, but that, that's it. It's, it's entertainment for the most part, but in my day job, I'm very, 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 um, critical of technology and, and measuring its value. It's a great point. And, um, you're right. I mean, like, uh, one of the things I value a lot now is screen time on my iPhone, right? So I've set limits to how long I can be in an app and that sort of thing, which I think has been beneficial, um, I'll tell you, the other day I downloaded this app and it was like, it's like a, it's a, I don't want to say who it was, but it was a utility, you know, like a service that I pay the money for, right? And um, it's like, you know, like a couple hours later, you know, just like a notification, hey, this app wants access to your microphone. I'm like, why do they, why do they need access to my microphone? It's just like where I look at my bill and manage my account and... And the next day, it's like, this app wants to turn on location services 24 hours a day, you know? And I was like, wait a minute. They want to listen to what I'm talking about. They want to know where I am. They're selling my data, you know? And I'm like, remove, you know what I mean? And it's like, but as much as I think I'm smart by doing that, there's probably 30 other apps that are doing the exact same thing to me that I'm unaware of. So, yeah, to your point, like people do get confused and in some ways it is a tool, but in other ways it's a tool for somebody else to, <laughs> to manage you and sell your data and sell you soap. Right. So it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. And to your point too, like I, I have found myself starting to turn off the phone, turn off the cable news and, you know, watch a video on YouTube that I'm interested in, usually about like religion or philosophy or something like that. I find it, that is very enriching, you know. So you're right. It like you're you're in charge of the of the technology mix, and it's up to you what happens. Yep. Best best expression I ever heard about technology was is, is if is if the if the product is free, you are the product. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's what's really weird is when you think. So I think I might have talked about this on another podcast, but I'm going to say it anyway. Like. Yeah, I mean, that's what the iPhone is. That's what all the devices are, right? Like, <laughs> you think you're getting something out of it, and you are, but they're getting something back. And um, anyway, Elon Musk was on Joe Rogan once, and he was talking about one of the companies he's owned. I always forget the name of it, but it's the one that's like basically trying to build a brain interface, right? And mm. And they're starting with like people that are completely debilitated, just like, you know, brain dead right to see if they can connect to a brain and get them to start moving around or talking or anything like that but but the eventual concept is you know some sort of you know extension of you that is a computer and you know most people when they hear that Joe Rogan too was like dude that is freaky i'm not sure i ever want to do that and he's like you already do when are you away from your iphone you know it is actually already part of what how you do things. In fact, a big part of how you do things. You message everybody. You talk to them on the phone. You read your news. You do whatever. 
and think about all I'm working on. This is Elon Musk talking. Is all I'm working on is the the input rate, right? So, like, think of how long it takes you to find something on you know that you're searching for on Google or just the type of text, right? Imagine you could do that at the speed that you think, mm. and imagine the implication for you in that in that mode, you know, or what a human might do with that sort of computing power, you know. It's both scary, but it's also pretty fascinating, you know, and <laughs> it's pretty funny. Ever since I heard him say that, I'm like, man, I want the thing that's plugged into my brain. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's taking too long to find this thing, you know, so I'm definitely uh, in the trap that, that you're talking about in terms of technology and, and it, uh, you know, maybe not being a, as as in control as I'd like to be, but I, I just find that fascinating that, you know, that's. That's sort of the next step is is plugging right into your brain. Yeah, we're living in we're living in some crazy times right now on a variety <laughs> of fronts. Yeah, yeah. Well, man, uh, we've been talking for almost two hours. I'm sure you want to get going. Um, so I, I don't know if you've heard it. Hopefully you have. But the way I like to end these is with a set of 10 questions. Okay. They came from uh, originally from a French TV show called Bouillon de Couture but they were used by James Lipton on Inside the Actor's Studio to close all of his shows, and I simply love it. So here it is. You got 10 questions. First thing that pops in your mind. Go. What's your favorite word? Think. I like it. What's your least favorite word? Abstain. <laughs> uh, that makes me think. Of, have you ever seen the musical 1776? No. <laughs> I forget why, but there's it, there's a running joke in the show that uh one of the one of the uh members of Congress just constantly just abstains. Like if they're ordering lunch, he abstains. You know, it's pretty funny. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Nature. I like it. What turns you off? Mm, large crowds. Mm. 100%. When I was young, I didn't care. Now I'm like, oh, there's 10 people there? Nah, let's go somewhere else. <laughs> what's your favorite, uh, yeah, what's your favorite curse word? Um, oh, gosh, there's so many. <laughs> it's not really a curse word, but I, I use it a lot. It's damn. Damn. It has just so many different ways to use it. It's just, it's like interchangeable. Mm-hmm. I like it. Uh, what sound or noise do you love? Uh, laughing babies. Mm -hmm. What sound or noise do you hate? Um, obnoxiously loud car horns. <laughs> Except if they're running the rebel yell, right? Oh, you can't do that anymore, right? <laughs> What what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? So I, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I've kind of dabbled in it a little bit on the side, but I would like someday to run my own business. Mm, cool. If you were to start a business tomorrow, what would it be? That's not in the thing, but that's my question. Um... I don't know. I would approach it. I would. I would approach it from. Uh, you know, what are what's a big problem in the world to be solved, 
and then go after it because I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go into business necessarily to like replace an existing income. It would be something that I would have, you know, some sort of, you know, human connection with that if I do it right, I'll in some way find a way to make money at it. I actually worked for a small company a long, long time ago and, and um, uh, the owner of the business had a sign up in the office and it said, and, and I'm sure it's a quote from somewhere. I, 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 I'm embarrassed to admit I never did the research to find out where it came from, but it went something like this. Um, uh, we will build good ships at a, uh, at, at a loss if we must, at a profit if we can, but always good ships. And I always thought that that was really a cool sort of way of thinking about going, you know, doing a business. That is cool. I like that a lot. What profession would you not like to do? Not like to do. I don't, I would not like to be a, I would not like to be a social worker. I think that would be really, really hard because mm -hmm. I, I would be very emotionally attached to the work. And I've talked to people who've done that for a living uh, and, and it's, it's, it's extremely hard. And I know I'm not wired for that. Yeah. I don't know how they do it. Some of those jobs like that, or like uh, a nurse that works in a, in a field, you know, where like cancer, for instance, or, or something along those lines. Yeah. It's, yeah. You gotta be a special kind of person for that. And I know that's not, that's not me. Yeah. Okay. Last one. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Well, aren't you lucky? <laughs> Wasn't sure. Wasn't sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I really appreciate you doing this. It was a lot of fun talking to you. And uh, thank you so much. My pleasure. I had a blast too, Justin. Take care of yourself. All right. All right. See you, man. Well, that's the view from the country today. I'd like to thank my guest, Chris Rich. Always great to talk with you. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at The Country USA. Or online, our website is thecountry.news. Thanks so much for listening. Why don't you tell a couple hundred friends about our podcast? Never escape to the country. Pizza. And stand there till it's done. Watch it all come crashing down just another fan.